The materials disclosed on this podcast are deemed to be sales desk literature and subject to our client communication policy and code of conduct, as well as IROC rules. Welcome, everyone, to this third edition of the FX Factor podcast, which, as we mentioned in our last podcast, is now available on iTunes, Spotify and Google. So don't forget to hit that subscribe button. On this podcast, what we're trying to do is go a bit more in depth on important macro issues for our audience that might not be familiar with things and then bring them back home to our in-house FX views. And for today, we've got a special guest all the way from Hong Kong. It's our Asia strategist, Patrick Bennett who I've worked with for several years now and is the expert on all things China here at CIBC. Patrick, how are you? Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, thanks for the invite. Uh, great to join you on this today. Excellent. Excellent. We're excited to have you on. Again, it's, it's perfect timing as well since we had our annual parliamentary meeting, I guess you can call it, in China. What was a major takeaway from the two sessions last week that you saw? Yeah, the good point. Yeah, the two sessions or you know, China's parliament uh, happened once a year. It was an important one this year. It's the centenary of the Chinese Communist Party, which has some relevance. Also the start of the new five-year plan. So probably a little bit more detailed this year than we got, say, in the intervening years. They talked a lot about balancing between the internal and external economies, uh, talking about greater integration, greater balanced growth. You know, a few things China's talked about it for some time has been a striving for quality over quantity. I think we used to use a little you know, comic strip of the panda on a treadmill trying to work it out, become more leaner, focus on that quality. So it really sets out China's all about planning. Nothing really revolutionary. You know, they set a, uh, a GDP target for this year, as they normally did, but not a great deal that, that wasn't already known. Right. And that GDP target, uh, remind me again, I should know this. What was it again? Well, yeah. So last year, they didn't set one because of the disruption from, from COVID. This year, they set one at uh, above 6%, uh, which in a way, well, not in a way, was actually quite low. Right. Most expectations out there are running at, say, you know, 8 or, or even 9%, which would be an incredible result. Uh, so the implications of saying setting it just above 6%, uh, the implication that, and we've heard some other comments right. from various officials, is, is perhaps they revive their strategy to delever the economy, mm. uh, you know, which means to cut down on some of the expansion of credit. And look at, you know, as we know, and as we've spoken about, those goals are, you know, just not complementary. You cannot boost growth and deliver at the same time. So perhaps they're using this fact that you know, growth is going to be well above 6% to maybe step on okay. the brakes a little bit. And that's something we're going to have to watch in the next few months yep. for the latest credit data that we've or was only for February, and that uh, that was actually quite strong. Okay, excellent. And uh, when you talk about deleveraging, is there any particular sector that the administrators in China are particularly worried about? I think it comes down to probably the the local government. We think back to 2008, 2009, and post that period, there was a lot of lending to those local governments to build infrastructure, you know, build schools, build roads, those sorts of things, which don't really have a an internal return on them. So right. yeah, some of the leverage that's built up is in that. It's certainly in the corporate sector because if we look at mm-hmm. Chinese debt overall, it actually compares reasonably favorably with, with other economies, uh, whereas other economies, a lot of debt can be in the government or, or the private sector. Uh, in China, there's not much in either of those, but it's all in the in the corporate sector. Right. Okay. And with respect to the GDP target of just above 6%, I noticed that they're moving away from specifying a particular target and moving towards a range. Do you think that's achievable? I mean, you're talking about $15, $16 trillion economy. I mean, do you think they can achieve that? Or is that something that they're kind of going to try and juice going forward? 
Look, I think they can achieve it. I think there's a lot of juice in the in the economy at the moment. It's a pretty incredible result, isn't it? And I think there's been a lot of comments for you know for many years that you know how long can this be sustained? And I guess let's get down to this question: Is China still acting like a, you know an emerging market? Has it still got more juice to get? Has it got the means to to boost GDP? You know, you know the two key inputs that they do have is they have labour and they have productivity. Right. You know, they're looking to move up the you know the value chain in, in a lot of different areas. So that's going to help boost the productivity of output in the economy. Yeah. So I think they can continue at, at pace, but uh, you know, certainly if we were looking further out, say you know, five to ten years, I, I think we're going to be looking at a more moderated level than we're at, uh, you know, at this stage. Excellent. And when you're talking about moving up the value chain, are there any particular sectors that they're targeting? I understand it's manufacturing, but is it more aerospace, AI, uh, electric vehicles is, is one, you know, green energy, you know, blockchain. Okay. What they really want to do is they want to become technologically uh, independent. That's not an easy thing. And, you know, China had this goal of 2025, you know, China 2025, when they wanted to be leaders in a number of these sectors. And, and that was sort of, uh, well, that was not sort of, that was really put under pressure by the Trump administration when they were talking about, you know, this theft of intellectual property and uh, assumption of planning for businesses as well. So that's been put on the back burner. I think they still have that ambition, but we haven't actually heard of that uh, recently. Okay, excellent. Well, why don't I switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about the U.S.-China relationship and how that's expected to develop under Biden. Today, we're supposed to have this important meeting in Alaska. I mean, how do you envisage that relationship developing now under the Biden administration? How's it going to be different than what we saw under Trump? Well, I hope that, well, I think we all hope that it might be conducted on a more, let's say, statement-like fashion. I don't think the hawkishness has has gone away or or will go away. I think the hawkishness was across the political divide, and I think that's really only been strengthened over the last couple of years. So I think dialogue is good. I think China's willing to concede some points. Right. So let's see how it goes from this point. But yeah, I think it still remains a a, a cautionary flag uh, out there. We're not going to see some uh, unwinding of tariffs, uh, you know, or stuff like that. Yeah. So no unwind, but uh, I mean, do you expect any sort of escalation on that front? I don't think so, because I'm I'm not convinced that it was really a, to a great benefit to the U.S. Certainly, there were concerns for, you know, for the farming sector as well. But you know, it's really it's another way to collect some taxes. And yes, we know that there's you know discussions about that in the U.S. at, at the moment. But we'll just look on a trade front in particular. And I don't think it's had much impact. And interesting thing on, on trade as well that for all that's talked about of China being an export-led economy, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, you know, exports are, are not a con- contributor, well, not more than you know, one or two percentage points to, to GDP, and, and exports are around what eighteen percent of GDP. Mm-hmm. Exports. Are uh, you know, in the U.S., what twelve percent? Yeah, you know, sometimes I think that gets overstated, uh, you know, a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Even on this side of the pond, we continually hear about the China can't really manage a stronger currency because it's going to affect their export sector. I mean, there's still that view that it's it, the economy structured in the old way, really export dependent. Whereas I noticed that you've also spoken at length over the past couple of years about how it's shifting into a different framework. I mean, can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, that's right. Look, one of the cornerstones of this current five-year plan, and they announced uh, some of the broad framework back in November last year, is this concept of dual circulation. You know, China likes to have a lot of you know, mnemonics and uh, right. you know, little phrases to describe what's going on. Now, the basis of that is is to not focus solely on the external you know, circulation, which means, you know, the external sector or the export sector, to focus more on the internal or to, you know, more to have a balance between those. So so to become more independent, say, in technology as well, and to complete the value chains and some products as well. So mm-hmm. and I think that means getting some surety for themselves on, on imports of industrial commodities uh, and the like. Yeah, more emphasis on the internal that we have at the moment. Right, right. So really more of a consumption-led model that we've kind of seen in some of the more developed economies. Uh, yeah, that's... that's several. Yeah, look, that's right. And look, that, that's been a criticism of China for a long time. Well, two sort of sides to that coin. Right. 
Uh, perhaps 15 years ago, the global economy was saying, look, China has to you know, unleash its savings you know, and, mm. and spend more. Right. And, and then, you know, look, some of those savings were released by, you know, cutting required reserve ratios and that, and that money was lent out. So it wasn't that, again, you know, that's where the debt built up there. It wasn't yep. built up, you know, through government debt, you know. And so now they're trying to get more spending. You know, urbanization plays strongly into that. China's gone from, uh, what is it, I think 20% of population in urban areas back in 1980 to around 60% now. You know, so as those people move into the cities, they all require, you know, services and the infrastructure for that as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, that helps with consumption quotient. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you could probably pick on a few developed market economies as being more guilty of relying on the old export-driven model and really tapping into savings than, than China at this point. Yeah. I think it's changed a little bit. So again, switching up things a little bit, when we talk about China, we're really trying to get a sense of investing in China. You know, a lot of our audience that too familiar with how to invest in China. What are the current ways that you think foreigners can do so? Yeah, look, it's uh, it's, it's been a thing for, for for many years. People saying, "Well, look, I I can see this economy growing, and you know, how do I get exposure to it?" A lot of avenues opened up in the last few years. Uh, shares in or MSCI indices, uh, the Stock Connect, yeah. the Bond Connect um, out of here. You know, that goes two ways. The Stock Connect you know, goes both ways, but it's uh, you know the number is about a hundred billion. Yuan a day is available to you know to send northward and about uh, eighty billion to send southward and you know they're not they don't reach those numbers as yet. There's money goes you know backwards and forwards, but that's one avenue. Right. The currency has been uh, an avenue, of course, that the CNH, mm-hmm. you know, the offshore you know deliverable currency. So and so bonds issued here. So so CNH bonds issued in yep. Uh, in Hong Kong and then issued in in other centres as well. Uh, you know, Toronto and, and London as well, and Singapore have their you know, their own uh, CNA offshore centres. So that's been a way to get exposure. And uh, I think in the early days we saw a lot of buying of, of those bonds because people were trying to access appreciation of the currency. Right. So and so perhaps the yield on those bonds didn't really reflect the you know the risk in any uh, meaningful fashion. But that's one other way that the exposure can come. And, yeah. and China is opening up its capital account, although it's quite slow. Right. But we aren't, uh, we aren't seeing it happen. Yeah. I mean, in the, in the coming years, do you ever see it becoming as, say, capital mobile as the U.S.? Like where we have this sort of shift towards a true free capital mobility across its borders model? Yeah. Look, I think that's going to take a very long time. It's a question that i not loathe to put a, a, a forecast on, but I think you know, we've been talking for a number of years and said, well, look, it you know, was 2021, you know, the centenary of the... You know, Chinese Communist Party, you know, was that an appropriate time to, to have that? So you're sort of always trying to put a peg in, in the ground somewhere and it, you get up to it pretty quickly. So I think that we're going to see further steps along that path. Right. I don't think they're rushing you know, towards that. I think it's a good argument or a good case to be made when, uh, you know, China started the revaluation of, of the yuan back in, what, 2005. Yeah. That if the capital account had been opened then, then more money was probably looking to go out than, than come in. I think that's changed over time. And, and what we say about the currency right. is that, we, you know, Chinese policy, we believe, is geared towards finding a, a balance of supply and demand. And it, there's certainly been demand, you know, in the last few years. So, you know, we've seen that in portfolio numbers. The supply side is there. And I think that there will be more as the currency continues to stay strong and stable and I think for you know for banks like ourselves and others out there I think that's going to be the new avenues of opportunity say in the next five to ten years is being able to assist clients to who are looking to invest you know both inshore to offshore and, and offshore inward. Right and so that's a great seek into another point that frequently gets brought up talking about the yuan is international reserves and the degree to which the yuan might replace the dollar one day. Mm. I mean, it can't really happen until you get the same degree of capital mobility, really, in my view. But in your view, like, how do you think this internationalization of the CNH will work moving forward? 
And is that something that could happen? Look, I think it can happen. Uh, interesting numbers this morning, or this morning our, our time, the, the SWIFT numbers. So the SWIFT payment were a denominator in, in Yuan in, in February. Now, you know, it's not a great shake, just over 2%. Uh, they were 2.4% in, in January. And now that's not much when we have, you know, the dollar and, and euro taking up around 70% total. Right. But it is now outpacing currencies like the Canadian dollar, the Australian dollar, you know, the Swiss and, and others. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a very slow process. I think one of the ways towards that is China looking to denominate more of their trade in the local currency, in the yuan. Uh, we're already seeing some futures contract in China denominated yuan for oil and, and other commodities. So, you know, it's a process which is going to take some time. But I think... You got a long way to go from where we are now taking over the you know the dominance of the dollar is you know, probably not in, in the horizon that i can see uh you know at, at that stage yep absolutely i mean i always bring up the analogy that if we're talking about the search engines and comparing them to currencies the, the dollar is basically google right now and it's, it's really hard to displace that yeah but <laughs> yeah that's right it's, it's a long way to go and that can be good and bad but, you know it can be good in the in the fact that you know there is a long way to go right but bad because i you know less positive because it's going to take some time to, to get yeah absolutely and i mean it, in that sort of world I mean, we are seeing some degree of decay when it comes to the dollar as a reserve currency and i do think that there is some downside so going forward, I mean, can China become the Yahoo? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to your point, it's going to take some time and it's not something that can rely on the old framework of really just picturing one dominant reserve currency. I really do think it's going to be more of a multipolar world and the CNH uh, will have uh, an important part of, to, to play in that, right? Yeah. Look, that's right. I think that excellent way to put it, you know, this, this multipolar you know, world and we're going to see that. And I, I guess we've seen that a little bit, you know, in trade as well. We're getting, uh, you know, different sort of different sort of pockets. So it's uh, as, as mentioned by, by yourself and others, you know, the, the deglobalization perhaps, you know, has happened a bit. But, uh, you know, China's emergence or China's emergence is going to keep it you know, on the on the radar for sure. And, and people are going to start to and they have already to start to you know, build reserves there. But uh, again, you know, take take some time. Yeah. And when they do sort of internationalize the renminbi, are they going to stick with the offshore rate or are they going to convert everything to the onshore rate? Like, how is that going to be reconciled? Yeah, look, at the moment, it trades reasonably closely. But as all, as most will be aware, there is some diversion. There is sometimes some, uh, you know, arbitrage opportunities for institutions or, or businesses that have, you know, onshore and, and offshore representation. But eventually, you know, the, the offshore, the CNH will be phased out. Does it happen just at one number on, on one day? I guess that's, you know, I think that would be likely. I would imagine we would have a process like we had with the U. In 1999, that uh, we have some bilateral conversion rates, and, and perhaps they go and the, they get set at at, uh, at one point in the future as well. So, yeah, at the moment, as we know, it's a, it's the same currency. One is deliverable offshore, and, you know, and one is not. But uh, you know, there's no currencies, no folding notes for uh, for CNAs. But uh, I guess folding notes are becoming a, a rarity in many economies now. Right. Exactly. So now, for your thoughts on the currency, I mean, what are you expecting uh, for the renminbi over the coming year? Look, I think you uh, ever since uh, you know we've been together. I think that you know my uh, my view has been uh, you know towards the positive. Counting up, I think I've been uh, twenty seven years in Asia now, which is dating me me a little bit. <laughs> but look, I've always looked at you know I've always looked at China you know, as a uh, well, it's been an emerging economy and emerging currency. Maybe it's now emerged. Maybe it's not yet. Uh, maybe it's not yet developed. And we've talked about this as well before that. You know, emerging currencies tend to trend, you know, towards strength and or weakness. And once they become developed, they become cyclical. Right. Uh, I don't think we're at that point yet for the currency. I, I still think that there's a way to go for the currency to to appreciate further from here. Mm-hmm. And I think perhaps why that hasn't happened as yet is I, I believe there's always been a, or there still remains, a bit of a risk premium when it comes to China. And we know that Chinese growth has been 
outpacing growth in, in all other you know, major economies. Perhaps you know, this year, you know, that might get squeezed a little bit. But the risk premium that's been associated with that, one, about how do you get exposure? You know, two, how can you guarantee that you can get your money both in and, and out, you know, have been things that perhaps have, have held it back. So I think as the capital account is, you know, is open, as uh, more avenues are available for investment inward and, and outward, then I think that people will, I think investors, you know, will be looking to access that, you know, that, that GDP premium that's there. And so that risk premium you know, is unwound. So, you know, I remain positive from this point forward. And I think we can trade on a five handle sometime in, in the middle of next year. Has a kind of nice ring to it, for, you know, to me. But I think at that point, then we might start to see that, uh, you know, Chinese domestic savers and, and investors might start to say, well, look, you know, our currency is quite strong. You know, let's look at some, you know, some, uh, you know, moving into some, uh, some offshore assets. Right. Okay. So basically uh, a move uh, towards a five handle, then we'll recess at that point. Is that correct? Look, that's what I'm thinking. Yes. Uh, I think, we have, well, not I think, we have uh, 590 in the second quarter of, of next year. Mm-hmm. Then I think from that point, we can still see some appreciation, but I would expect it would become more sort of a, a two-way market, a, you know, this idea of a more a cyclical market uh, from that point. But I think it's still until that point, the outperformance of the economy, and again, you know, notwithstanding that some of that might get squeezed, uh, you know, this year, still leaves China, the, the currency in a, uh, you know, in a good spot. Excellent. And are there any other currencies in the region that you're constructive on? I like Korea and I like Taiwan. They're both, to my thinking, they're both pro-cyclical to, to global growth. And we certainly look to be in, in that mode at the moment, aren't we? So, uh, yeah, I like, I like uh, yeah, Taiwan and, and Korea. Uh, Taiwan has strengthened uh, quite considerably. Probably, I think Taiwan outpaced uh, Chinese growth the last year. Right. Korea is probably the, you know, the high beta in the region. That we've seen some unwinding. We've seen some unwinding of some dollar Asia positions as the interest differential has been been squeezed you know, between developed markets and you know and Asia. And on the other side, a couple like India and Indonesia, not so constructive on, but they do offer yield. And I think there's you know there's always there's always some demand at a level uh, for those. Excellent. We covered a lot of ground here, uh, Patrick. Thank you so very much for joining us today. This was very very informative and. Uh, Again, for those of you uh, listening, please don't uh, forget to hit the subscribe button and we hope you enjoy your day. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, excellent. Thank you. CIBC World Markets, Inc. or its affiliates may engage in trading strategies or hold positions in the issuers, securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments discussed in this communication and may abandon such trading strategies or unwind such positions at any time without notice. This communication, including any attachments, is confidential and has been prepared by the Rates Strategy Desk within the Global Markets Group at CIBC Capital Markets. CIBC Capital Markets is a trademark brand name under which different legal entities provide different services under this umbrella brand. Products and or services offered through CIBC Capital Markets include products and or services offered by the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce and various of its subsidiaries. Services offered by the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce include corporate lending services, foreign exchange, money market instruments, structured notes, interest rate products, and OTC derivatives. CIBC's foreign exchange disclosure statement relating to guidelines contained in the FX Global Code can be found at www.cibccm.com slash FX Disclosure. Other products and services such as exchange-traded equity and equity options, fixed income securities, are offered through directly or indirectly held subsidiaries of CIBC as indicated below. The contents of this communication are based on macro and yield curve analysis, market events, and general institutional desk discussion. The authors of this communication is not a research analyst, and this communication is not the product of any CIBC World Markets Inc. research department, nor should it be construed as a research report. The authors of this communication is not a person or company with actual, implied, or apparent authority to act on behalf of any issuer mentioned in the communication. The commentary and any attachments other than any attached CIBC World Markets Inc. branded research reports and opinions expressed herein are solely those of the individual authors, except where the author expressly states them to be the opinions of CIBC World Markets Inc. 
The authors may provide short-term trading views or ideas on issuers, securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments, but investors should not expect continuing analysis, views, or discussion relating to the securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments discussed herein. Any information provided herein is not intended to represent an adequate basis for investors to make an informed investment decision and is subject to change without notice. CIBC World Markets Inc. or its affiliates may engage in trading strategies or hold positions in the issuers, securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments discussed in this communication and may abandon such trading strategies or unwind such positions at any time without notice. The contents of this message are tailored for particular client needs, and accordingly, this message is intended for the specific recipient only. Any dissemination, redistribution, or other use of this message or the market commentary contained herein by any recipient is unauthorized. If you are not the intended recipient, please reply to this email and delete this communication and any copies without forwarding them. Distribution in Hong Kong this communication has been approved and is issued in Hong Kong by Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce Hong Kong Branch, a registered institution under the Securities and Futures Ordinance, the SFO, to professional investors, as defined in clauses A to H of the definition thereof set out in Schedule 1 of the SFO. Any recipient in Hong Kong who has any questions or requires further information on any matters arising from or relating to this communication should contact Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce Hong Kong Branch at Suite 3602 Cheung Kong Center, 2 Queens Road Central, Hong Kong. Telephone number 852-2841. 6111. Distribution in Singapore. This communication is intended solely for distribution to accredited investors, expert investors, and institutional investors, each an eligible recipients. Eligible recipients should contact Danny Tan at Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce Singapore branch at 16 Collier Quay, number 04-02 Singapore 049318. Telephone number 6564233806 in respect of any matter arising from or in connection with this report. Distribution in Japan. This communication is distributed in Japan by CIBC World Markets Japan Inc. Distribution in Australia. Communications concerning derivatives and foreign exchange contracts are distributed in Australia to professional investors within the meaning of the Corporations Act 2001 by CIBC World Markets Inc. Communications concerning securities are distributed in Australia by CIBC Australia Limited. License number 240603, ACN 0006325626 to CIBC Capital Markets Clients. CIBC World Markets Inc. is a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. In the United States, CIBC World Markets Core is a member of the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority and the Securities Investor Protection Fund. CIBC World Markets Place is authorized by the Prudential Regulation Authority and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and Prudential Regulation Authority. CIBC World Markets Securities Ireland Limited is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, Sydney Branch, ABN 33608-235-847 is an authorized for Bank branch regulated by the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, APRA. CIBC Australia Limited, AFSL number 240603, is regulated by the Australian Securities and Investment Commission, ASIC. CIBC World Markets Japan Inc. is a member of the Japanese Securities Dealer Association. Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce Hong Kong branch is a registered institution under the Securities and Futures Ordinance, CAP 571. Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce Singapore branch is an offshore bank licensed and regulated by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. Unauthorized use, distribution, duplication, or disclosure without the prior written permission of CIBC World Markets Inc. is prohibited and may result in prosecution. 